This is a podcast where I talk to people about the things they're obsessed with. My name is Marcus Privet, and this is my obsession. sitting outside in Salem, Massachusetts, on the back deck of a good friend, Aaron Harrington. Aaron, you were one of the first names that I was given when I came up with this idea for this show, <laughs> that you had to be on it, by your wife, and she said, airplanes. And I didn't know you liked airplanes. I love airplanes. Clearly, you're obsessed with them. And so, here I am, I have to capture this. We're sitting here, what are we drinking? Uh, this is purple carrot juice with some San Pellegrino. And a splash of tequila. From Costco. Costco tequila. Boy, if there's a backup to airplanes, it's going to be Costco. I'm looking for sponsors, Costco. So (laughs) here I am drinking your tequila. We're sitting outside on the back deck. Hopefully we can hear some airplanes fly overhead. Do you know if airplanes regularly fly in this area? We do have airplanes regularly in this area. Depending on how the microphone works, we keep them above us typically. Okay. And so they'll be leaving Boston in a few minutes. Okay. And uh, I'll be I'll be heading out. Airplanes. Yes. Before we get into any of the specifics, what what is the Aaron Harrington airplane inception moment? Were you a kid playing with airplane models growing up? That's what I think of when I think of airplane geeks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so my love of airplanes, uh, I think it, it started maybe around. 12 or 13 years old, I took a flight to Europe, my first international flight, and I thought, this is the best thing. Like, you get on board, they give you pajamas, and you get all this great food, and you get to watch TV for hours. Was this your first flight ever? First flight overseas. First international flight, okay. And so I, I thought, this is the best. I, I, this is so fun. And then you look out the window, and I thought, I'm relatively short. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is great. You get a good view up here. <laughs> yeah. uh, I can see what's going on. I can see the top of the trees, the top of those buildings. And I was like, I'm hooked. I've got to keep flying, and I need to I need to get back to this. Wow. And so that was my first moment of loving a flight and, and uh, wanting to know more about airplanes. The whole experience was uh, on a 747, which maybe it was love at first flight, but that's just the, the airplane that I have continued to be most enamored with. That's a Boeing 747? A Boeing 747. Okay. Yeah. So the story behind the, the 747 that I like is from really a guy named Joe Sutter. And Joe, he has a great story. He essentially willed the 747 into existence, mostly because he needed a job and Boeing gave him an insane assignment. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, if I just keep working on this, they probably won't fire me. So I think it was in the 40s. In early 50s, so he had graduated college, and, you know, he had his aeronautics degree. He lived in Seattle. He'd seen planes overhead and, uh, you know, had seen Charles Lindbergh and followed him in the newspapers when all of his stuff was going on. So Joe got a job at Boeing. He was an intern. They let him work on a few different assignments, but these are all for prop planes. And they reached out to him, basically like, you know, kind of the terrible work that interns get you know Mm -hmm. here's a here's a project we'd like to go from these 30 seat prop planes we'd love to follow that up with what essentially was the 747 and basically being 
young and stupid and not wanting to be unemployed. He's like, great, I'll get started right on it. And so that is where the, the 747 began. And that was just something bigger and... Boeing was um, looking to the future, okay. which is one of the coolest parts, I think, of just the entire aviation industry. They are predicting the future, planning 10, 20, and 30 years ahead, hmm. what will be. So Boeing thought, well, this is what the future is. We need more people are going to travel, and we need to get them there. We need a bigger airplane. So Joe set out a team of one to you know start pulling the pieces together, doing drawings, uh, the engineering work, and kind of in a foolish way, you know, he just kept being persistent and reporting back to his boss, and eventually Boeing had this concept plane, one that they weren't ever going to build, but they kept throwing him, you know, the occasional, you know, he just kept plugging away, honestly, and finally, uh, years into this project, they came back to him and they said, hey, not only are you in charge of it, you have a, a full-time job here, uh, but we're going we're gonna to go ahead with this, so, so now you need to actually build this thing. Oh my which gosh. presented a little bit of a challenge because <laughs> they didn't have anywhere near the facility to produce the 747. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they went out of their way to, to build him a little factory. I think at the time, and this is crazy to me, I think at the time it was the largest indoor space on Earth. And I, I think they might have only given up that title very recently. So, Like the manufacturing place? Yeah, okay. the, the, the hangar, the, yeah. the factory. So as they were coming around to producing this enormous plane that needs an enormous amount of space to be uh, built the planes were being built faster than the factory was being built wow. uh, they had to i think they had to slow down production a little bit so that the roofers could build the roof of the factory so that the planes weren't getting wet which was <laughs> ironic because yeah. uh the building was so large even after it was built uh it was so large that there were uh, it had its own weather systems inside, is how I think I understood it. So it was basically more than humidity. It could produce very small rain showers inside the factory. That's how large it was. What? And so, really? Uh, <laughs> That's <yeah>. crazy. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so, as they're producing these planes and building the factory around it, they have these planes but no engines because Boeing doesn't produce engines. You know, they always say if you if you're flying, you can look at the engine and it says like Rolls Royce or GE. Mm-hmm. And so part of Joe's job was to have the the engines built. Well, at the time, there was no engine like what he would need for the 747, let alone four of them. And so I think they went with a Rolls-Royce engine, and Rolls responded by saying, well, we don't have it yet, but I bet we could figure it out if you give us time. He said, well, you have time. You have 10 years. So they sort of built the future by asking Rolls-Royce to create an engine that they had no idea how to build, give them a 10-year timeline, and uh, Boeing was a little bit ahead of schedule. They finished producing their planes, but they had no engines because they weren't quite perfect yet. So they beat Rolls-Royce. They did. Okay. So they have a problem. That's kind of scary, yeah. Where do you put an enormous plane with no engines? (laughs) It's Um, like a metal pile. Exactly. So they rolled them out of this enormous factory, and they just put them on the airfield. And so the problem is airplanes are heavy, engines are heavy. It's so to, to balance the weight, there's a lot of weight in the tail of an airplane. So what they found out with the first plane is, well, once we finish it, it'll roll back onto its tail. Well, that's no good. So as he told the story, they decided to solve this problem in a fairly creative and sort of interny way. I guess they just hung enormous concrete cinder blocks 
w- underneath the wing where the engines would eventually go, <laughs> matching about the weight of the engine. Uh, and they thought, oh, look at that. It's, it's balanced again. So we'll just leave them here until yeah. uh, we get those engines delivered to us. And so eventually those, those engines, uh, they did come. And I think it was the first flight where uh, you know, Joe had been, I think this had put a little bit of strain on his marriage building this little side mm-hmm. project for Boeing. So he invited his wife down to the airfield for the first flight. And as I understood it, he had her stand at a, a one particular space on the runway. So if you stand right here, this enormous thing is going to come rumbling at you, but it's going to take off right where you're standing. And uh, true to an engineer, he was right. And so uh, his wife was standing literally right alongside the first 747 as it took off for the very first time. Oh my that sounds gosh. like a magical experience. That's one I wish I had. Was he there with her? Do you know? He was there, I think, probably with the rest of the team. I think she got to stand alone and yeah. watch that one happen. Yeah. But I thought that's pretty cool. I mean, that would be just so awesome to see that happen. So, you know, to find modern aviation changed the entire scene because now you could you could take 500 people and go 10 hours in any direction. Mm-hmm. So the whole world has suddenly opened up. And we've now had the 747 for 40, almost 50 years. That's crazy. And this is the end of it. What I heard recently is that uh, Korea Air is going to take ownership of the last 747-800, probably sometime in 2017. And after that, Boeing is shutting down production. They're going to still produce it for cargo and freighters like FedEx or UPS. But they're not going to focus on it anymore for uh, commercial travel. What they've done... In That's with that aircraft in particular. Yeah. They're not, like, pulling out of passenger travel altogether. Not passenger travel, right, no. Right. Because with, with passenger travel, what they created was an enormous market for planes to travel uh, the globe and uh, get people to all these different destinations. These are kind of your maybe tier one destinations. Mm-hmm. And what they found is there's a lot of people that are willing to travel now. But they want to get to kind of the tier B destinations. So, you know, maybe instead of flying to Oslo, people want to go to Bergen in Norway. Right. And so 747 can't make that landing. Plus, there's not enough people to make that a route that needs to be flown with a 747 very often. Hmm. So realizing that this was the future, maybe 20 years ago, Boeing set out to answer the question, what do we need to, to fly? And so they went with a much smaller airplane compared to the 747 and the A380, which is their competitor's uh, Airbus, the double-decker airplane. Yep. Uh, I've ridden with... one of those. You've ridden? An A380. Yeah. How was it? Uh, yeah. Wait, I saw you perk up there. I did. It was incredible. I'll comment on that later in a second. My senior year engineering project was working with Airbus in France. Oh, that's awesome. my That's my connection to airplanes. Yeah, it was a it was a it was a great project, but oh, so cool! We rode on an A three eighty. Yeah, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I have not flown on an A three eighty yet, and I would love to. Yeah, I'd really like to be in the apartment suite that they include in that. That that one looks nice. Oh man, I haven't seen that. That I think is reserved for clients further up the food chain than you or I. Yeah. So. So Boeing and Airbus are, would you, are they the main two players? Would you say in in this yeah. space? Yeah, okay. um, but there are smaller manufacturers probably for, you know, uh, private planes or, yeah, private planes like Bombardier. Mm-hmm. Um, Honda's getting into it. But these aren't going to be the, the massive commercial aircraft like Boeing and Airbus produce. Right. So so Airbus went all in on the A380. This You know, they just took the 747 and 
made that little upper deck the whole uh, second floor. Yeah. Which described the A380 for four people. What? So we have no context for that. It's, it in, is, it's incredible. It's a gorgeous airplane. So it's four engines, absolutely gigantic. I think it's it's maybe seven or eight stories. The tail mm-hmm. is seven or eight stories high. It's insane. Um, you know, most airplanes you get on, and they they put you through the little like jetway thing, and everybody goes through the same one. Mm-hmm. I think they demand of airports that they will fly the A three eighty two that they allow at least two jetways, one on the first floor, one on the second floor, and maybe maybe a third in some airports. Um, a but, double-decker airplane. Yeah, yeah. double-decker airplane, airplane. But they have forced entire airports to do massive renovations just to host their airplane, essentially. Oh, my gosh. Um, so Logan is doing it right now. Or, or they just actually, they just finished it. Hmm. It's It's extraordinary in its size. Eight... More than 800 people can fly on it at once. So the challenge that Boeing was looking at was, what's the future? Is it something bigger than the 747? Is that what the future of of air travel will be? Or is it these Tier 2 destinations? So they went all in on Tier 2. And at the same time, Airbus was addressing this question. They went all in on capacity. Interesting. And, And I think in the end, Boeing will be proven right so airbus's orders were you know through the roof maybe in 2010 you know at all these air shows they're trying to sign deals and i think they were signing deals left and right it looked very promising and this is a huge aircraft with a huge price tag Mm -hmm. and so what these companies found is that maybe they don't have the numbers to justify purchasing all of these a380s and so airbus's orders have fallen off significantly and many of them have been canceled Hmm. so i think they're down to maybe one or two deliveries a year whereas boeing went all in on the 787 the dreamliner they went you know it's um composite materials carbon fiber how many passengers that's a good question maybe 260 maybe a little bit higher i'm not totally sure on that but it's way more affordable than the a380 and it can get you to all of these unique destinations so it has a shorter um, it needs a shorter runway to take off and land. It's way more fuel efficient, maybe maybe 20% over the next similar aircraft. Then, you know, they've got all these little technological innovations, the ability to create a lower air pressure so it's more comfortable on the plane. The wings, as I understand it, um, bend up slightly uh, as it takes off. So this just helps it be more fuel efficient and um, have a shorter Need, need a shorter runway to take off. Super cool airplane. So they have been selling these things like crazy. Hmm. Uh, these planes, too, absolutely awesome to me, is not only did they make a plane that can get into these tighter destinations, but they've also made it so it can fly an incredible distance. So you could easily take a flight on the Dreamliner from Boston and find yourself in Tokyo, Hong Kong. Wow. Uh, routes that have largely been inaccessible are now you know being traversed a few times a day for what reason were they inaccessible one is uh do you have a a plane that can travel that distance so if the answer was yes do you have enough people to justify that route right and if the answer is no then the whole thing is a no Hmm. and so this is the first time where smaller hubs can say uh yes we have the people we have you know 260 people and um they're going to be willing to fly from our destination to yours every other day 
and we can we can guarantee that. So these airlines say, yeah, well, we'll wow. take the seven eight seven because we can make a lot of money. Yeah, and that's what happened here in Boston with the the seven eight seven going to Tokyo and Hong Kong and Shanghai. I think every other day. The only plane that could have pulled it off before was the I think the A three thirty and the Boeing seven seven seven. But again, these are bigger airplanes. Those two should be the different company's version of basically the same airplane. Um, but you have to have a lot of people to fill those up. Mm-hmm. And so it just wasn't justified. Yeah, yeah. I had so, a, uh, yeah. my, I took a class in college called transportation engineering. And our professor, whose name was Dr. Tranny, of all, <laughs> of all things. Boy, that's rough. Yeah. <laughs> Hate to get a doctorate in that. Yeah. Dr. Tranny. He loved airplanes. He was like this, um, this like sixty-five-year-old uh, Hispanic guy, like hilarious. I remember in the middle of the. This is right when I had gotten back from working in France on my engineering project, and he asked me in the middle of the class what f- aircraft I took over to France, and I said the A three eighty. And he stopped the class, and his face was the same face <laughs> that you had just a second ago, and he said, "Oh, that's a nice bird." <laughs> <laughs> It's awesome. You can just tell he was like freaking. He's like, that's a nice bird. And there's like 80 people in this class. He's not teaching. He's just thinking about the A380. And just tells the entire class about it. It was. Oh, I like that. I can. Boy, anytime you can see one. Yeah, I, didn't, I wasn't it. aware of it at the time, though. I mean, I thought it was cool, but it was the first time that I'd flown to Europe. Mm. I thought that this was just what European flights were. But oh, I guess yeah. the A380 was pretty state of the art. Which floor were you on? I was on the bottom floor i believe yeah um i remember thinking it was really cool that you could on the little screen in front of you that you could look on a camera outside of the plane oh that's that awesome. was like the coolest thing i remember and they had like wine like a lot of wine <laughs> <laughs> that was great and as soon as we like crossed over into like french rules right then you can like start drinking if you're not 21 yet like it was, oh yeah <laughs> it was great yeah uh, which a lot of my classmates did. <laughs> that is a nice part about international flights. But you cross like 10,000 feet and suddenly somebody's right there offering you some wine. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I mean, if you're going to force it on me yeah, like this, I mean, sure. I, of course yeah. I'll take some of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those are, I love flying international flights. Yeah. Because you get this cool effect of timing. The, the, the scheduling of airplanes is this whole cool world where all the European flights are landing in, landing on the East Coast at the mm-hmm. same time. You know, it's a few hours because they've all left Europe at about the same time. It's fun to, if, you know, if you're looking to, to see planes come in and land, uh, to know when to step out, you know, like, oh, 10 a.m., I can expect all the flights from Asia coming in, you know, 3 hmm. or 4 p.m., like, oh, here come the European ones that, that right. took off in the morning. That's the kind of stuff I geek out about. Yeah. It's just the scheduling and... Air is it aircraft control? Is that what the title is? Oh like, yeah, air tra- aircraft control. Yeah, yeah, I love that stuff. I mean, that it's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, there's a whole world uh, out there that's just so many smart people working together to come up with this kind of complex schedule that just works perfectly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it's amazing. Yeah. And so in the airplanes too, they, they make I mean, everybody knows this, right? But they make money when they're flying. Um, so you don't get paid to sit around. Right. So the the question is like how do you land your plane, uh, get people off, and then fill it back up? Where do you go next? You know, so like how do you how do you plan your your destination and 
how long you want to be on the ground before taking that same plane off and going somewhere. So, you know, sometimes these planes will fly in from maybe like Iceland or something, drop people off quick, get a whole new load of people, maybe just shoot down to Bermuda real quick, come back to the same same place they just were, pick up more people and head back to Iceland. Mm-hmm. You know, just got to make some money. It's uh, crazy. Yeah. And so they're all basically flying the same routes. Uh, the same planes are flying the same routes. But I these, don't think I knew that. These people have uh, found ways to make them work even when they're not doing their like core route. Right. So, so where we're sitting, we're kind of on the, we're on the European landing path here. The same planes that are coming in from Heathrow and Frankfurt and Munich today were the same ones that were coming in yesterday. So they'll land uh, in a few minutes, probably three hours later, they'll have been cleaned and restocked and everybody Mm -hmm. will be boarded. They'll take off and they'll fly out straight over the Cape and the amount of the, uh, the amount of time passing seven hours or so on board. They'll basically run the same schedule back in Europe. The return flight come right over us again. Same airplane. Wow. I think that's pretty cool that like they've just there's a very complicated world, but they've simplified it in one particular way, which is let the let the airplane do the same thing over and over again. Like don't don't overcomplicate it too much. Yeah. Like that that, was a, that was a smart move. You could learn from that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think they call it. Um, can't remember the word now. Uh, there's the the question of like, has my has my plane fatigued? Is it too tired to mm-hmm. to fly? How safe is this thing? And um, what happens is the amount of flight time is generally okay for airplanes. You know, you don't want to run it for 40 years. But the real problem for an aircraft is the the pressure. And so every time, if you take off from here and you fly to Manchester, New Hampshire. That would basically be one flight cycle. And uh, you get 20,000 of those before you need to do a major overhaul to your airplane. So what? Yeah, you get, you get a lot of rounds. Yeah. But whether you go from here to Manchester or here to Tokyo, it still counts as one flight cycle. Interesting. And so the, the idea, if you're wondering, like, is my airplane safe? How long is it? How old is it? It's... It's not necessarily a question of how old is this machine, but how many flight cycles has it done? And so if it's, you know, 10 years old, but 5,000 flight cycles, you might say, oh, this is, this is safer than one that's uh, two years old, but 19,000 flight cycles. Right. So it's, it's all about the pressure because the airplane, you know, it expands and it contracts and many other things that those smart engineers have figured out. Right. So uh, I always think that's interesting, though. Whenever I get on one, I'm like, I wonder which flight cycle this is like i really hope it's number one (laughs) yeah this is my first one yeah so that's cool when will a company retire equipment at what at how many life cycles is that just depending on i think that's depending on the number of times they've done the complete overhaul whether or not they've they want to keep flying the same route that they've been using this airplane to to fly and uh, often what I, i think when you see people with private planes what they've typically purchased is basically a used plane from a major carrier okay although that is a world that i just don't know much about honestly like private airplanes yeah i just haven't haven't purchased one yet yeah but uh (laughs) i don't know the the ins and outs of it not in that market no not yet but i did hear somebody one time say if you want to be rich all you gotta do is sell an airplane one time that's good advice yeah yeah is there a lot of money in airplanes so i often think like from the point of view of say say JetBlue. Yeah. Right. There are 150 people on my flight. 
that I'll spend $140 on a ticket. I mean, if you add that up, that's a good chunk of money. But even then, I would think overhead and any contracts that they have with Logan Airport. I imagine the overhead in the aircraft market space is just awful. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that they have to do. (laughs) Yeah, there is not a ton of money uh, in a flight. Not to say this isn't a business that is paying lots of people millions of dollars but right it's not it's not big business in the way that you think it is normally right yeah yeah so you pay by you're paying for space in transportation so the more space you take up the more you should be paying this is um, why first class is so expensive um so you're paying let's say i don't know on jet blue 100 150 bucks for your for your ticket one way and um, although love, they don't love JetBlue, by the way, love JetBlue. Yeah, JetBlue's yeah. great. Still looking for sponsorship? We love yeah. JetBlue. JetBlue, huh? we love it. <laughs> you and Costco sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> so with uh, okay, JetBlue doesn't have uh, first class, but they have this mint thing. Although I don't know uh, too much about about their mint class, mm-hmm. but it is essentially first class, right? So where you might pay one fifty for economy class, somebody in first class might pay. Ten fifty, right? So they're paying ten times more what you're paying. Is it really that kind of a difference? In many cases, it could be. That's insane. It it can be such a thing. Uh, That's not worth it. So it is worth it if you have like Goldman Sachs paying for it. Right. Beyond that, it's same destination. Although, I think after flying first class, it's probably hard to to come back. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Once you know. Yeah. so with with these huge fares to fly in first class, this, these are actually the the major money makers for the the companies. Uh, so their goal is to move those seats more than any other. Got it. Because the margin is so slim for the people in economy. So maybe it costs the airplane you know, one hundred twenty five dollars per person to you know get them from. A to B. Well, basically, if, if it costs the airline 125 and the person bought a ticket for 150 they're making $25 per person. Well, if you can pay 125 for somebody in first class and have them pay 1050 you've just made some serious coin. Right. Um, so if you can get eight people like that, you're very likely making more money on those eight people than you are than the rest of economy class combined. Hmm. So it can be tough to, to work with the margins. I think right now British Airways is trying something that seems pretty clever. They are offering a flight from London to Boston where the entire thing is first class seats only. So they give you a very premier treatment. They take you up uh, for what is a pretty short flight. You land in Dublin. And why Dublin? Like you could throw a stone to Dublin. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess... Uh, TSA and Customs has a whole program there where you can now go through Customs ahead of your arrival into the U.S. So they send you through Customs in Dublin, then you reboard your plane. Now you are essentially a domestic aircraft to the United States. Wow. This is really helpful because now you can go to any terminal, and for the passengers, you just don't have to wait in the whole Customs line from you know the other you know 25 airplanes that are all landing at the right. same time. From there... You know, after Dublin, you get this great flight. You get in, you have a great experience because the entire thing was first class. Well, that's major money for British Airways mm-hmm. because they just charged. I don't know what it would be. Maybe, um, maybe just 150 people, whatever the cost of the first class ticket was. 
So they're taking the model of the Concorde, putting it on a non-supersonic flight, but charging first-class prices for everybody. Right. It's a pretty good move. That is a pretty good move. And then they do it again the next day. They do it back, and then they, they come it. back. Yeah, every yeah. day. Yeah. So I think more airplanes will probably do this. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point people move from, or the companies move from these mixed flights to focusing even more on some really popular routes uh, that are straight first-class and straight economy class and no well very few um wow carry over that's probably what the first class people want anyway i think so they want to be with your people they want to be with their people yeah yeah Yeah. definitely not have the riffraff around yeah Yeah. have you ever had the had the privilege of riding first class i did there was a flight that i took to moscow and the it was a it was a rough experience getting to moscow we left boston and in the middle of the flight, I think I just had been asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you an airplane sleeper? I'm an airplane sleeper. I yeah. love it. I could have just woken up and I could, I could fall asleep on an airplane in an instant. <laughs> yeah. I love sleeping on airplanes. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm asleep and I I wake up and have to use the bathroom. So I start walking and um, I guess I fainted. Right. So that happens, I suppose. If, mm-hmm. And uh, and so when I when I came to, I thought, boy, my ribs really hurt um and I, and I had fallen just over like a cart or something oh my gosh so i have this this pain but anyways we we land everything is is okay um but i was definitely having a hard time breathing and just it was rough yeah i didn't think much of it i thought i probably bruised when was this 2013 so it, it hurt quite a bit the the broken rib um that's what it ended up being but i had to get to moscow anyways so our flight had been delayed out of Boston, so we were delayed getting into Heathrow. Just missed my connecting flight. That led uh, led me to have 12 hours in London. So I thought, well, this is really convenient, actually. It's like 8 a.m. I can just go into London. Yeah. Um, no need to sit in an airport all day. Why not? So I toured around, and, you know, all damn thinking, boy, my rib really hurts. Um, <laughs> but Toured around London with a broken rib. Like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to exhaust myself. So that I can sleep on the flight into into Moscow, and I did. I stayed up, stayed awake all day, toured around, and I got on the flight. And um, I had emergency exit seat, and at the front of the economy class. And so the the, uh, the flight attendant comes by to like show me my little video screen, right? And and he can't get it to play. Like he look, it's like stuck in the seat. He literally cannot pull the TV out, mm-hmm. and I'm like, it's fine. Like I'm just gonna sleep on this flight. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. He's like, no. Like the the laws are you in an, in this row have to be able to see this. Otherwise, we can't fly. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Is there like I'll just sit in another seat. Right. <laughs> not, not me. Yeah. Like I I don't really have the energy for this. And so he was like, all right, we'll put you in another seat. And he came back and he's like, you're in first class now. I'm like, well, I hope we don't have a problem because now no one's in that row. But um, <laughs> I'm like, you solved the problem. And I thought, thank God, I'm going to sleep so deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sat down to this girl sitting in the seat, the window seat. And um, yeah, she's probably 15 or 16. And the flight attendants came by and said, would you like uh, a glass of champagne? You know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would love some first class champagne. Yeah. And this girl looks at me. She's like, you speak English. I said, I do speak English. I said, are you from America? I said, I'm from America. She said, this is my dream come true. I have always, she says, I'm returning, I'm returning to Moscow from someplace that I forget. 
and I had to go through London, and it's always been my dream to speak English with an American. I can't believe that I have four hours to sit and talk with you. I'm like, I don't think you have four hours with me. <laughs> like, have you asked me what I would like to do? <laughs> You're like, and my rib is broken. Yeah. So we ended up talking for quite a while, and that was it was physically exhausting because mm. – it's hard to talk when you have a broken rib, it turns out. It's hard to talk with it when you don't have a broken rib. Yeah, especially if you've yeah. been up for uh, right. 24 hours. And, uh, and so we talked for quite a while, but I did, I did get a little bit of sleep. Um, unfortunately, because of the 12-hour delay in London, when we landed in Moscow, it was very early in the morning. I think we got there around 4.30 or 5 in the morning. And uh, because we were supposed to get in the night before, I had, made, I had arranged for a friend to pick me up. And I was going to spend the night at their house with, with their family. But instead, we got in at 4.30. And so um, she came and met me. And it was like, my family's still asleep. So we'll just spend the day in Moscow. Like, boy, that's going to be really tough. I am I am very <laughs> exhausted. Yeah. Um, and I have a big backpack full of things <laughs> that I have to lug around. But we had some espresso in the airport. And off we went, and every time we sat down, I fell asleep, and the entire day was spent. <laughs> every um, time I sat down, I fell asleep. In, in what was a, a, like a comical error, I think on her part, she brought me to this enormous park, uh, Gorky Park, and there was an art installation that was supposed to be, like you're supposed to engage this art installation, and it was a community effort that this artist wanted to do, where he was like, people just want to have like, conversations in beanbags and so what i saw was a park filled with gigantic pillows and i definitely right. fell asleep in one of those you know in a very jarring way woken up like we have to keep going like you can't fall asleep i'm like i can't fall asleep <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you did. don't know me <laughs> just did. i'm exhausted so this went on for for quite a while uh, the entire day with me falling asleep and, and then moving on to the next thing and uh and somebody got food poisoning so she she had oh to take care gosh. of this in the evening. She had to take care of some I'm loving the story. This is a great first class story. The chapters keep coming. <laughs> this, is, this is the abridged version. Uh, yeah. So it's, Somebody in your group got food poisoning? Yeah. So we went out to dinner with like family friends and um, you know, somebody got food poisoning. And it was, phew, it was, it was like, uh, I don't know what you're going to do. Like somebody promised me that they're going to drive me like the 200 kilometers to where I need to be. Right. Like, well, it's out of Moscow. And, uh, you know, they're like, well, no one can drive you anymore. Like we have to take this person to the hospital. Like, well, I, I can't like not get there. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? They're like, we're going to put you on a train. Like, uh, I don't, I've mm. been on this train. This is a like rattle trap that is awful. It's also now uh, 11 p.m. on a Saturday night, mm-hmm. and what I've been told is don't ever take the Moscow trains. Or it was on a on a Friday night. Uh, don't ever take them on a on a Friday night because this is when people go to their 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 dachas, their like summer home kind of thing, mm-hmm. and. They're like, sorry, that's your only option. So I was put on this train. So now I have like my broken rib. I have my big backpack full of stuff. I'm very tired now. It's, yeah. We're like an hour 30 plus or I don't know, for, yeah. maybe 40. Um, everything is a blur. And I, I do remember hearing for years from my, my friends in Moscow, well, don't ever take the last train out of Moscow. And so now I'm on the last train out of Moscow and I speak no Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, I know what stop I'm going to. I have no way of identifying what stop is what the oh train gosh. system is sorely lacking in moscow 
Uh, but I do know that I have at least like a 90 minute ride ahead of me. And all they said was somebody will be waiting for you when you get there. Like, uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, mm-hmm. cause it's going to be like one or two in the morning, uh, whenever we arrive. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the train just starts rattling on and it's just, it's drunk people everywhere and they are fighting and staring at me and yeah, I'm trying not to fall asleep. Cause, um, what I had failed to mention is I was also bringing, somebody had raised, um, financial support for themselves and I was meeting them to give them that money. So I also had $10,000 strapped to my oh chest. My and so gosh. I'm aware of this, um, that I've been lugging around for the last two days. And, um, there's a, a person who's staring at me and I thought that's, that's uncomfortable. And he is enormous. It just, everything about him was gigantic. He looked like Rob Gronkowski with a shaved head, basically. Yeah, and uh, Russian. And Russian. Yeah, he did not look friendly uh, or approachable. Yeah. And so I, I tuck myself in between um, a mother, a Russian mother and her daughter, and maybe they will be, like, a safe barrier, because I don't really have any other option. They're the only two on here that are not, like, absolutely blitzed. And so <laughs> yeah. uh, I move to sit next to them. He moves and sits at the edge of his, their bench seat, so he sits at the end of his bench. Um, and he just stares straight at me while well, everybody is now like fighting on the train and just, it's just very loud. It's just generally terrifying. And, uh, I thought, wow, I'm going to find myself in a very odd fight. I can't keep my eyes open. Um, I'm going to get mugged and then presumably I'll wake up in Latvia when the train gets to its final destination. Mm-hmm. That's a rough ending to an already rough time awake. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so this is happening. So now the, the train starts emptying. We're several hours into our train ride and I'm trying to figure out using Google Translate, is is there, like, any hope of me figuring out what stop is mine? They were like, just count 33 stops and then get off. I'm like, that's going to be tough. I keep, I keep nodding off here. <laughs> like, I have no <laughs> yeah, idea where I am. Yeah. Um, just count 33 <laughs> stops. And so uh, I asked the conductor who came through, who is drunk, you know, um, or, like, the ticket collector, and right. they're of no help. But I did say what my stop was out loud. Also, Google Translate didn't work because I didn't have any reception. So I'm, like, We're not re- quite there yet either with Google Translate. No, it's not quite there. Yeah. So I'm really like SOL, you know, yeah. and uh, the ticket. So now it's just me and this other guy and the ticket conductor walks out of the train car. I thought, oh, this is where it happens. This, is it. This yep. is it. So I reach into my pocket. Like, do I have anything that's like any sort of defense? And I have what is like basically the equivalent of a, like a pocket knife with like a quarter inch blade. It's it's comical how tiny it is. Yeah. I'm like, well, at least I got this thing. You know, like, yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, pick a scab off of him with it. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> and so as soon as the door closes, he stands up and he sits down right next to me. Oh I'm my like, gosh. Oh boy. This is the end. Yeah. Uh, and the train is quickly decelerating. So we're coming into a station and, uh, he looks at his phone and he, he does something, which I assume is like, now is a good time to approach him. You know, like that kind of like texting yeah. some message to some other like terrible, terrifying Russian yeah. people. And so he taps out this message, turns around his phone and he said, we are at this stop. This is, this is what it said in, in, um, in the translation, the, it was uh, he used he had Google Translate, so he turns around. And he's like, "This is the stop that we're at. Your stop is this one. It's the next stop." And with that, he got up and he left. And um, I thought that guy's been watching me the entire time, yeah, guarding me. He was making sure I was safe, not in danger. Wow, but that was finally the first good thing that has happened. It was a long flight, yeah, long journey into <laughs> Moscow that day. And you rode first class. <laughs> that was my trip in first class. I hope they're never as memorable as that one. Right, right. So the last, the time that I flew first class into Moscow, I survived. Is, yeah, yeah. Is the essence yeah. of that story. Love that. Yeah, got a little off the rails there, but that's a... <laughs> Love it. Well, you were on a train, so you were on the rails. 
Nice. Um, okay, bringing it back to aircraft because I have I have one last question that I wanted to just fire your brain about. When you when you said you liked airplanes, I'm yes. thinking like stealth bombers. Okay. And stuff. <laughs> like, do you not t- typically get into the military type airplanes? Right. Is that not yeah. your, really your sphere? That is not really my sphere. Okay. It just never took. Yeah. I mean, I love looking at the stealth bomber. Right. But the majority of the the fighter jets, well, super cool to watch, has just never quite grabbed me the same way. As the, just pa- straight up passenger planes. Yeah. Yeah. So the little bit that I know about... Um, you know, the fighter jets and things. They're very awesome to see, but they're hard to see. Typically only air shows. And right. even then, at, for me, it's they don't really come to, to this area very often. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I kind of think about... So I went and saw the, the Blue Angels at one point. Nice. And that was, that was really cool. The dilemma that I found there was very similar to a dilemma I found, well... Um, watching a bike race called the, the like the Tour of Germany, and I was in Germany for it. And so for hours, you know, I'm, like, I'm standing on the patio and I'm like waiting and waiting, and everyone's cheering, and and then like finally you can sense that the the peloton is coming, mm-hmm. and then they passed, and then it was over, and I thought that was it. Like I should have just right. watched this on TV. Right. And so the that was my Times Square experience. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah, happened. Same thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> I thought there would be more. Yeah. <laughs> so then we all like went to bed or, or I don't know, whatever we did, went yeah. ate lunch or something. And so the Blue Angels was like, I could I could hear it. I could sense it was coming. And then they like flew overhead and then it was gone again. And then minutes later they'd come back. I'm like, I'm not having a great time here. I wish yeah. I was just watching this yeah, on TV. Yeah, yeah. It'd be way easier. So the 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 stealth bomber is, is something I don't know much about, but the SR-71 is the probably the, the military plane that I – think is very cool hmm. uh this is the spy plane i think it, it flies at maybe like ninety thousand feet way up there a plane that is that heats up so much that the panels on the plane are not actually touching when it's on the ground so that creates a dilemma well for example when they go to put fuel in it they open up whatever gas cap they use and they right. pour the fuel in but because the the outer shell of the plane isn't it, these are like tiny gaps, not like inches or anything. Uh-huh. But because the the panels of the plane are designed to expand in heat, when the plane is cold and on the ground, they're not touching. So the fuel goes in and they pour it in at a very high rate, but it leaks out through the gaps when it's on the runway and basically taxing. Oh my so gosh. then they fire up the engines and take off. So the last thing they do is put the fuel in. But the entire time before it starts flying, it's just leaking fuel all over the runway and for the first little bit into its flight. But once it's once it's going, once it's in flight, the plane heats up so much that all of the panels expand and it basically finishes building the aircraft. Wow. It seals the gaps, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, and then it, it flies up to, you know, 90,000 feet or whatever the number is and it just, it's up there doing Six whatever tons. it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Dropping bombs doing, and stuff. Yeah, barrel <laughs> rolls and flips. Yeah. Uh, whatever it is that those pilots like to do. But that's a cool plane, and uh, I have to imagine that we probably will be retiring that sometime soon if mm. we haven't already. It doesn't seem super efficient, yeah. Uh, but a super cool plane. I think it I don't know, maybe it does like maybe uh, some some very high number. I feel like Mach three, maybe Mach six. Okay. It's, yeah, it's yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a cool one. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked to hear just even as you're talking. Would you call passenger passenger aircraft industry pretty young? It's 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 fairly young, right? 
in terms of like commercial travel, like commercial yeah. travel. Yeah. I think we're probably in the probably approaching 70 years of passenger travel. Right. So I would say like as a major industry, it's that's pretty young. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, Can you so yeah. I, what I want to ask is just what is what do you think is the future of of air travel? Pa- yeah, just of passenger air travel and commercial air travel. Well, that's a good question. If Boeing has their way, they are working on a supersonic aircraft that, at this point, they're just renderings, and they're probably looking... Mm-hmm. This is probably their 20- to 30-year vision. So this would be a, an aircraft that will go just below the... Uh, just below the inner reaches of space. I don't know what you call that. Like the... The level of the atmosphere? S- yeah, stratosphere or something like that. Yeah, high yeah, stratosphere, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. They're going yeah. up there. They're very yeah, high. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea is... Um, get up there as quickly as you can because you can fly a lot faster up there. Hmm. And so I think what they would like to do is build an airplane that looks more like... It's kind of got that fighter jet shape. The the wing is not like a typical aircraft wing, but kind of that long wing that touches all the way back to the, the tip of the mm-hmm. plane. I think they'd like to use that to get up into the stratosphere and then go for these you know enormous distances. Maybe it's... I guess as far as they could go, halfway around the world. Right. Now, we can go close to halfway around the world at this point. They would just like to do it faster and at a fuel-efficient rate. I don't know what other um, options there are. I, I just haven't researched that or right. looked into it. Right. Um, who knows? Yeah. Truly. It's the future. The sky's is, the limit. Is <laughs> <laughs> Nice. You're on fire today with the funds, Marcus. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Virgin Galactic. I, I could see them creating an arm that gets into it. I mean, they, I guess they have the, the whole Virgin group, but uh, they got their whole effort going out in New Mexico, and then lots of people are trying to get into that industry mm-hmm. uh, always. And so hmm. we'll see. Yeah. Well, thank you, Aaron. This was Thank great. You. This is I'm I'm much more interested about airplanes at the end of this conversation than I was coming in. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for coming on and it was great. Absolutely. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yep, no problem. Thanks for listening to another episode of My Obsession. If you enjoyed this conversation, it'd be a huge help to me and others if you rate and review the show on iTunes. That really does go a long way. Finally, I want to talk about your obsession with you. If you'd like to appear on the show, email us at myobsessionpodcast at gmail.com. My Obsession is produced by me in my bedroom while drinking a cup of coffee. All guests' opinions are their own. Music is written and provided by the artist State Shirt. I am Marcus Privet.